Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. In my home on a weekday evening is my friend Ed Axley. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. Hey, thank you so much. Glad to be here. Ed has the coolest name, A-X-L-E-Y. I mean, it just feels like a cool name, so I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. Our mutual friend introduced us, and just um, she knows you and realizes that you are a convert to the church that has experience in the Catholic system and the Episcopal system, joined the church at 18 um, on the East Coast, and then served a mission in Costa Rica and has been home for about 20 years. A married father of four, owns a business in Utah County called Davis Design Build, and recently completed his assignment as a bishop in his ward. And it's just one of these great members of our church and great members of our community that has insights that will help all of us. So um, this podcast, you know, I kind of share with our listeners, this is like us going out to lunch and me hearing Ed's story. So kind of welcome to lunch and Ed's going to share his story with me and all of you at the same time. But we've kind of outlined this, listeners. Um, I thought it would be good for Ed to tell his conversion story and um, especially being exposed to so many other Christian religions, the uniqueness of our religion that drew him into our faith. Um, Then he's going to talk about just four ways to respond. And I'll just let him introduce that segment when we get to it. And the last segment will be kind of his role as a bishop to help people not feel less of yourself and not feel shame and feel hope and better understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ. So if you feel less of yourself or are kicking yourself in the shins for anything you've done, um, I bet that Ed has some things that will help you. So that's kind of an introduction for our podcast. Is that okay, Ed? That sounds great. So let's go back to Maryland. You're 18 years old, you're on the East Coast, and you're deeply involved in a couple phase. Just start there. Do you, do you mind if I go back even a little bit further go than that? Go back further. Are you going to go back to the pre-earth life or just I, I, well, earlier years? I'm going to go back to earlier years. So I actually grew up in Pensacola, Florida. Um, I was there until I was 14 years old. Grew up on a bayou. Uh, we had the water in our backyard. In fact, we used our boat as much as we used a car to travel up and down. And it was just a great childhood. I grew up with a, an agnostic uh, Lutheran father from a German background. And he used to actually talk about going to church as a child where the preacher would actually speak in German and he could quote some of it, you know, in, in, in his German accent. And my mother was uh, an Irish Catholic from Maryland and she was extremely devout Catholic, very, very faith-driven. We had a Bible on the stand that was ornate and beautiful. And, and because of their marriage and my father having this kind of Lutheran background, but being agnostic and my mother being this Catholic, devout Christian woman, they compromised on Episcopalianism, which was this kind of uh, Catholic uh, faith that didn't recognize the, the Pope nor the sovereign. It was kind of this independent Protestant version of the Catholic Church, which was a great compromise. We went uh, weekly. To, to church. We were a very devout family. Even though my father wasn't a man of faith, he very much believed in the community value of the church and he believed in the structure of the church. He felt like no matter what, the structure added value and then the community connection, being with other people. My mother obviously felt very fond of the faith and then our, you know, our direction in life as far as it pointing towards God. So my mother taught us how to pray as, a, as, as children. She taught us how to say even our rosaries, even though we weren't, uh, we weren't practicing Catholics. My father, following that pattern of culture and community and structure, put us in a Calvinist-based uh, Southern Baptist private school, about the most staunch school you could think of. In fact, if you think BYU is strict, you have no idea how strict these Southern Baptist schools can be. We was uh, we started at, we started in um, uh, kindergarten and worked our way all the way through high school. At least my siblings did, and we went to Bible study every day. We jokingly say in our family that we knew the old the Old Testament and the New Testament better than any faithful LDS person because that's all we studied. And and then as time went on, unfortunately, my parents divorced. Their marriage just wasn't uh, compatible. As we jokingly said, they had irreconcilable differences. And um, I continued to live with my father. He actually remarried and married a Presbyterian woman who was extremely into her faith. And to be, uh, to be 
uh, honoring to her and to the new marriage. We went for a few years on Sundays to a Presbyterian church and we got into the Young Life program that was there, the youth, you know, the youth program that was there, which were, you know, Wednesday night choir practices and everything like that. As time went on, I moved in with my mother. Um, and she as it almost felt like a little bit as a of a, a rebellion to the marriage, but also to kind of rear me in what she felt like was the true proper faith. She put me through my catechisms and put me into a very staunch uh, uh, Catholic school uh, called St. Paul's, actually. Uh, we had nuns with habits and priests with collars, and we were a uniform school. And we went to Mass every, uh, every, well, every week while we were at school, and then we served Mass on, you know, on Sundays. And my mom, to catch me up to speed, volunteered me for all the altar boy services. I did weddings. I did other events. So I was just that, that, just like in the movies, I was that child that was wearing the white robe and carrying the cross, following the priests, you know, burning the incense and everything. And it was fabulous. We had a great time. We had, uh, I did my Boy Scouts program through the Catholic Church. I did the uh, a bowling league through the Catholic Church. I did track and uh, cross country through the Catholic Church at that time. And it was fabulous. So I moved to, uh, at the, I eventually followed my mother to Maryland. And uh, I had all these interesting questions that never ended up kind of uh, settling themselves out. Like I, I had these kind of diverse concepts of what is the Trinity, you know, the actual identity or identities of God and the Godhood. I had, um, I had thoughts and issues with, I guess you could say, with the, def uh, the definitive nature of heaven and hell. Um, I didn't like the concept that an all-loving God could possibly condemn millions, if not billions, to people to damnation simply for never having an opportunity to hear of him. And that just never settled well with me. And I, you know, I had a few other things. I, you know, interestingly, I didn't like the ambiguity of like the baptism of Christ. Like I didn't like the concept that he would go through such efforts to sh manifest in different ways and uh, leave that to our confusion, I guess you could say. And those very questions, even at an early age, um, even, even though I wasn't trying to be contentious, would get me reported to my mother for causing problems in Bible study or get me kicked out of class so I could help maintain the spirit, I guess you could say, because I was causing uh, commotion. And so I started kind of looking around at other faiths. The other thing that I was kind of interested in, which is, which I look back now and the irony of it is, and it's, it's not, I guess it's not irony because it's not comical misfortune, but at the time it might've seemed like misfortune. I, I was looking for a little bit of structure because coming from a very strong Irish family, we also drink a lot, and I was I was already I was already heavily into, uh, uh, you know, participating in that in that fine that fine cuisine. I guess you could say at that age. And um, I'm a social person, and I'm very I have a very kind of addictive personality, and I was afraid that I would uh, continue down that path myself. So I was looking for what I would jokingly tell people. I was looking for my because. Uh, if you go out with friends um, and they say, hey, would you like to have something to drink? Uh, it's, it's difficult to say, I don't want to if you don't have a because. You could say, no, thank you. I'm just not thirsty tonight. And they'd be like, why not? And if you don't really have a good because, no one will, they won't leave you alone. Because the issue is, is that it's social. It's not like they're trying to cause you problems. They just want you to be part of the group. So if you don't have something that is transcendent, or that would actually be more than what just, uh, I have to be at work tomorrow kind of thing, something greater than that, it becomes difficult. So I, I used to tell my friends, I'm looking for my because, because I was already having problems going out on the weekends and having too much fun, I guess you could say. And, and, I, was, and I was terrified of actually the, the examples I'd seen in my family, because we're heavily social drinkers, I guess, you know, for the lack of better words and without condemning my my love of my my love and respect for my family. The uh, so when I when I came across a couple of different faiths, I became very interested. In fact, I actually went back to kind of my roots and went into uh, Presbyterian faith and very much loved it. I was going I was going to church regularly. I was still going to mass with my mother, but going to Presbyterian church on my own. And my mother was supportive of it. 
And then I had in Maryland, there were five LDS kids, five Mormons in my high school, one of which became my better friend. And we had become friends for, uh, we had become friends four years earlier. And we were, uh, uh, we were in some ways a little bit inseparable. Like we just, we hung out a lot on the weekends and, and did a bunch of different things. In fact, you know, she was just a lot of fun and a great example in so many ways. And over time she would, you know, she'd invite me to things and I would unfortunately never go. So one Friday night, I, uh, uh, I called her up and I said, Hey, um, do you want to go out on Friday night? And she said, yeah, I would love to. Oh, by the way, and this is her asking, oh, by the way, I hear that you're attending these, you know, Presbyterian meetings and stuff like that. And I said, oh, yes, I am. And she goes, how do you like it? And I go, I love it. In fact, I think I'm going to, you know, join myself to the Presbyterian faith. And she goes, so just like that, you're just going to join just like that. And I said, yeah, why not? And she goes, we've been friends for four years. I've invited you to seminary. I've invited you to dances. I've invited you to family home evenings. I've invited you to church. And you don't come to any of that stuff with me ever. And on a whim, you just go to a church where you know no one. And I said, yeah, I guess so. And she goes, well, why haven't you ever come with me? And I go, well, you're Mormon. And she goes, well, you're a cruddy friend. <laughs> and, and actually, we didn't end up going out on that Friday night. And it gave me a lot to think about as far as uh, just being respectful towards my friends of different faiths. And so I actually, um, I should have done this through her, but I didn't. I went to another friend. I'm more of an acquaintance that I knew was Mormon. And I said, hey, I understand that you guys have these missionaries that talk about your, your faith. I, you know, it's hard to find literature about it. I, I just would love to kind of know a little bit more about you guys and who you are. And, and, I, and I was very upfront. I was like, listen, I'm doing this to be respectful to, to our other friend. And I want to make sure that she knows that, that my friendship is real. Like, I, I think I owe it to her. So he's ultimately set it up. And I met with the missionaries and they wanted to share the lessons with me right off the bat. And I had really no desire to do that. I wanted to actually get into something deeper. I wanted to talk about these questions that I had had, you know, how do we handle the concept of the definitive nature of heaven and hell? Like, is it true that everyone is simply condemned to either hell or simply going to receive exaltation into heaven? Like, is there... What, what about all the middle gray area of just the mortal experience of people being not in the right place at the right time? And, uh, and they said, oh, that's really interesting. You know, of course, we can talk about that. And then I, and then I said, you know, and then I talked about the, what I felt like was the ambiguity of the symbolism of Christ, at least how it was portrayed to me and the kind of the confusion that it kind of led in my life. And then I also wanted to hear everything else, but I wanted to see their thoughts on that. So they shared their answers on those on the fact that, well, there isn't any ambiguity about Christ and, uh, and about his baptism. There is a heavenly father that, and he is the father of all. And there is a son and he's an independent person. And, you know, he is the, you know, he's the creator under the direction of his father and that there is the Holy Ghost. And he's a, he's a member of the Godhood and a, and a brother also. He just hasn't received his body. And, you know, and so on. And that all seemed to resonate and feel really good. And then I said, and then they go in about this question of the definitive nature of heaven and hell. Well, interestingly, we don't think it is so definitive. We believe that people have an opportunity to hear, even when they didn't necessarily receive it in this life, that, that being in the wrong place at the wrong time on earth doesn't mean that they can't be in the right place at the right time later. And, and that they have an opportunity to kind of work these things out and, and find salvation, you know, even, even if the timing wasn't perfect while they were here or, and there isn't this kind of just either you either make it all the way or you're condemned all the way. There's kind of these, you know, these, these uh, glories and other opportunities and things where people can find peace and happiness at whatever level they so desire. And, and I was like, wow, that's quite amazing. That actually all feels really great. And that feels very normal. And that kind of goes with what my soul was kind of yearning for and wanting. And then out of fear into the discussions, they got into what they thought would be a big uh, division for me, which was both the word of wisdom and tithing. And interestingly, I had no problems with tithing. In fact, for 
for whatever reason, giving something back makes me feel better about the money that you earn. You know, like it's somehow or another, it just it's it's human nature to want to give back a little bit of what you have been given. You know, it's like parents and children and neighbors, you know, once a neighbor shares a cup of sugar with you, is it not human nature to want to give something back to them, whether it's a thank you note or an, another cup of sugar or an egg, you know, however it is, it's human nature to want to give back to those that have given. So to give a little bit back in the concept of tithing, when I already believe that God has given us all was very comforting. And then, you know, the word of wisdom was an interesting thing. They thought it would be a major divide and it wasn't. It actually gave me the, um, the because in life that I desperately sought after. I wanted to be able to tell people that I live this way because, and I'm a firm believer that the word of wisdom isn't a limiting factor, nor is it, um, uh, uh, nor is it anything other than a symbol of who we are. I had many wonderful friends that were Jewish when I was growing up that abstained from eating pork. And it wasn't, it wasn't because they believed that <laughs> pork was bad for you. It was because it was simply was a way for them to be symbolically living the faith that they had. And, and then I had many friends that were um, Hindu and they would abstain from, they would abstain from eating, uh, you know, beef and other things like this. And, and it was more just a symbol of who they were. It wasn't, and they didn't go around condemning other people for not following the same guidelines or for participating in those activities. And that's how I feel about the word of wisdom with me. It's, uh, it's a symbol of who I am. When people watch me, I say, well, I, I, can't, I don't do that because, and the, really the because is for my own health and good. It's because I know my own uh, limitations in life and I want to have the, the best opportunity to be healthy and good and, 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 uh, and be present, I guess you can say. So long story um, that all of those stories and all of those teachings and in a, in, a, in a few more weeks, I chose to, uh, to be baptized. And funny, this all happened so quickly and there was so much energy around it, at least I felt that I had forgot to tell my friend this whole time that I had been receiving the lessons from the missionaries. And at the tail end, she found out that I was going to be baptized and she came up, she came to my baptism and she was crying and she was terribly excited. And then when she got me in the hallway, she punched me you know, in the shoulder and was so upset with me because I hadn't told her that I was doing this. And she, she goes, you really are the worst friend ever. And I love you so much and hugged me. <laughs> I love and, that. And it was like, it was just, it was just a wonderful moment. And, um, and here I am that, you know, that was back in, uh, I joined back in 1993. So it's been many years now since then, 28 years now, and it's been a wonderful life. I'm a firm believer that the gospel is nothing more than a tool set and it, it provides you a, a better opportunity to um, build a good life. It isn't, uh, it isn't anything more than uh, just giving you the things that you need to find and create happiness in your life. And that's what I feel like the gospel has given me the tools to build happiness. I love that, Ed. Um, that's a powerful conversion story. And we're going to move to the next segment, listeners, because I want to keep us on track. But I just, the uniqueness to me is just your experience with all these faiths. It's not like you came out of one faith. You came out like out of 20 faiths. And I love the questions you had in your mind. It reminds me of so many conversion stories in my life. And it reminds me of our unique restored doctrine through the prophet Joseph Smith. And it does answer these complex questions. Um, I love I love the fact the missionaries weren't so, I'm thinking back of my mission. I might've been so rigid with you, Ed. I would have said, we'll get to your question. We're just going to teach what we've on our order of teaching. So I think there's a principle there, listeners, to sometimes we have an idea of what we want to do. And sometimes the spirit, those missionaries hit a home run where they answered your questions instead of maybe taught what they felt they were going to teach on that first lesson. And I think that's just, I'm a marketing guy, so I'm thinking of just meeting the needs of people in our lives by having enough flexibility to deal with the things that they want to deal with. So you served a mission to Costa Rica. I'd love you to move into the second segments, just, and this is now your, you know, we've skipped a whole period of your life, but just this idea of four ways to respond. 
So four ways to respond is uh, uh, something that came to me as I was uh, serving as a bishop and working with uh, both the youth and the adults uh, through these questioning times that we find ourselves in. As I was serving, we were uh, running into um, people of all ages, uh, of, of every kind, of all demographics that were just trying to figure out who they were and where they're going and and what they're doing. And when I say who they, you know, who they were or who they are, that's everything from what they want to study in school, what sports they would like to play, um, how they would like to have their relationship be with their siblings or their parents, to uh, even much more complex question of who do I like, um, whether that's whether that's in friendship or even beyond that, whether that's in attraction, even physical attraction, and then even even one step more complex or even a little bit deeper is who do I want to be? You know, whether, you know, whether, who do I want to identify as? And I find that there's, there's different ways to respond and they have each and every one of them has, has an outcome and has a consequence possibly, uh, and can even have a reward. And the four ways that seem to make sense to me, and maybe there's more, but the four that I've narrowed it down to when presented with uh, a question in life or a situation or a problem even, you can either, as an individual receiving it, whether you're the parent, whether you're the sibling, the friend next door, or the ecclesiastical leader, you can do kind of one of four things. You can either ignore it and pretend like that that question was not presented or the situation was not described or the concern was not shared. So you can ignore it. The next one is uh, you can condemn it. You can immediately go back to some foundation that you hold true or believe to be and compare it to that and find the contrast and then condemn the situation based on those conceived ideas. Uh, you can enable it. And a lot of what our world is right now in the quest of, of, of embracing and loving and accepting, we also imply this concept of enabling. Um, so it's not as much just uh, hearing it as it is, let me help you achieve that. And by helping you achieve that, I'm going to show you my love for you. And then the, the last one is, uh, and I actually think that this one is probably the one that has the most success is to simply validate. A lot of times when the individual comes to you, they're not necessarily looking for you to solve their problem or answer their question or even point them in the direction. They want you to just know that you heard them and they want you to know, they want to know that you're there so that as they go down that direction or they explore that path, that if they stumble along the way, that you'll be there to help lift them up. That doesn't mean that as they're going down that path, that you need to give them the bicycle to go down it quicker. And that you also, they also for sure don't want you to then ground them and put them on a chair and maybe tie them down so they can never go down that path. And then, and then by the same token, they also want, they don't want you to just pretend like they're not looking down that path to ignore it. So in my, in my world, I believe that validation is, is, the, is a very honest way of showing love. It's a very honest way of reaching across the table and holding hands with the individual and letting them know that you are there. And you can validate them with their troubles. You can validate them in their concerns. You can validate them with their, in their questions and in their quest for truth without enabling them to go in different directions. And I think that allows them an opportunity to search and seek to find the truth in their life. And it allows them to then find mutual respect with where you are and what you have found to be true in your life. By, by validating someone else and by the, just the reciprocal effect of love, they would then in turn and should validate you and where you are and what you have found. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 
symbiotic path of love and respect without uh, creating divisions between the individuals. So as a bishop, um, that's what I would try to do. Um, that doesn't mean I was perfect at it by any stretch. Trying to validate. Trying to validate. Go back to, before you dive deeper on validate, just go through these earlier ones that um, it, just explain, ignore it and condemn it, and then spend more time on these last two. So as a, you know, interestingly, as a parent, I have four children and, you know, right now they range from the age of 10 to 18. Um, and they come in and they, uh, they say things and they tell me things. They talk about the people they like or the troubles they're having or the teams they want to be on. And the, the worst thing I can do is if they come in and they're telling me that they're stressed out about a math test, for example, the worst thing I can do is simply ignore it. Like, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to just be so preoccupied on my, on my phone or, uh, watching, a, a game or, or, uh, dealing with another issue that I've ignored them. Now that's one type of ignoring. There's another type of what I call wishful ignoring. It's, uh, it's when a child comes in or an individual comes in or a neighbor or friend comes to you and they say something and you simply have no idea how to respond. You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. So then you quickly change the subject. Um, you, you, they go, Hey, listen, I'm really struggling with this, um, this, uh, this question I've been dealing with, whether it's a gospel related, uh, question, whether it's a faith, you know, even something as, as fundamental as faith, you know, a faith question, I'm really struggling with my, my faith in God or my faith in my savior right now, because whatever reason, I don't feel like my prayers have been answered or I don't feel the closeness that I once that I once knew. And your response is, I'm so sorry. Hey, um, should we go get some pizza or should we, you know, Hey, why don't we, you know, I don't know. You, you, you look for any reason you can to change the subject because it's made you uncomfortable and you don't know where to go with it. So the natural defense is to avoid it. And I think that's, I think that's a problem to avoid it is to ignore it. To ignore it doesn't solve it. It doesn't create the connection that the person so desperately is seeking with you. And in fact, I believe that if you continue to avoid it and continue to ignore it, the individual will stop coming to you. And that is the worst. Um, I'm not saying that they need to come to you because you need to influence them to change their life. No, they need to come to you because you are their brother whether that's a legitimate biological brother or a brother of, of God, it doesn't matter. You are their brother or, your, or their sister, and you should be there just because it's the right thing to do. Ignoring it doesn't allow that. I love that. And I think the principles you're teaching apply to our roles in, uh, for a local church leader, um, a parent, a friend. I think the things you said apply to all those, correct? Correct. And, and going into that, if you, you know, it, it, the truth is most of the time we don't know how to respond to these things. We don't know the answer. We need a moment to marinate on the information we just received. I mean, if, if it doesn't cook down a little bit, it won't be any good with whatever we give back anyway. So the, the, the point is don't ignore it. Allow it to come. Don't be afraid of it. And then validate what you've, what you've now experienced. Try to uh, connect to it to some degree. Let them know by even simply repeating it back that you've heard it so that when you share back to them what they just shared with you, they know that you heard it and they know that you understand it. It gives them a chance to clarify it or to add to it. And, and then you can get to these things. And then you know what happens? You may go away with no resolution in mind, and that is okay because, you know, trees don't grow in a night and uh, answers are not found in a moment. Most of the time, at least in my life, I've never had an angel Moroni or any of that sort show up to me at my bedside and give me an answer. Most of my answers have come over time, even at a personal level. So 
it doesn't surprise me that other answers wouldn't come over time. And a lot of times it's a discovery process together. You know, you're going to go down this path of discovery together. And that is what it is to validate and to then love, I believe. I love that. That's great. Just keep talking about this, Ed. I don't know if you want to talk more about Condemn um, and just these sections. I will say, listeners, that I really agree that ignoring something when someone opens up, it um, does create shame. And I think you'll talk about that because if the person you open up to doesn't want to talk about it, it just creates shame that this subject or this part about you isn't, people don't want to talk about it. And so that just kind of puts you back where you were. Um, and often is not helpful. So I love that it's a natural reaction. You're teaching us to ignore it, but, and you're creating grace that sometimes we don't know what to do, but I think you're helping us understand that we've got to talk about things that people want to talk about if we're going to help them. But just keep going wherever you want to go with. I don't know if you want to talk more about condemn, enable, or validate. I would love to talk a little bit more about condemn. Um, I think often one of the more natural responses is to... Uh, to condemn a person for their actions. And I think that's extremely toxic and very, uh, very problematic. The, uh, you know, you see this with, uh, you see this in young parents. A lot of times they don't know how to respond to a child when they come in. So they immediately lash out or yell. And it's a, you, you learn as life goes on that that doesn't create the, the best response, nor the warmest feelings with the child. And, uh, you, you know, those kind of lessons should be extrapolated into the rest of life. You, when I was first called as a bishop, I had a, I had a much older and wiser bishop uh, give me a little bit of counsel. And it was more, it, it was a little bit comical, but I think there's always a little bit of truth in all jest. And he, he looked at me and he goes, when people come in to talk to you about their life and their and their struggles and sometimes even their problems, the uh, the one thing I can ask you to do is not to look at them and and have your jaw drop to the floor, and then go, "You did what?" You know that that's a problem. He goes, "You don't want to do that because immediately it separates you from them." So even though your your maybe your natural tendency would be to question the the reasoning of what they did or how they did it don't do that uh, when they when they come in they need to know that you love them and they need to know that you're there uh, half the time when they come in they're already there because they feel a need to do something different or better and they don't know if they what they've done is right or whatever whatever the reason is but they don't need somebody else to come in now and, and confirm the fact that they already feel bad. Does that make sense? So we, we have to be careful about how we condemn the, I'm a, I'm a, I, I, I do believe that, uh, you know, as it is said in the old, uh, in the old Testament, that when the, when the Lord says that vengeance is mine, that it really is for him to, to lay these kind of condemnations down. Uh, it's for us to live differently. We've been asked to love and to uh, and to uh, support and sustain, you know, and to help carry and to and to build. And so, so to condemn is maybe not the, our place. Uh, and we need to be careful how we do that. Now, when I say we shouldn't condemn, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't make righteous judgments about where we should go in life. Every decision we make is a judgment of we go this direction or that direction. And judgments help us fine tune where we are and how we are with people. But to condemn is a whole nother level. And we need to, we need to avoid that, I believe, as much as possible. I love that. Anything more you want to share on this segment on any of these four things? Ignore, condemn, enable, or validate. So I'd like to touch one for this last little bit on the concept of enable. Uh, interestingly, yeah, that was the yeah, good. Yeah, um, interestingly, I believe that in our society today, uh, it's different than when I was growing up. Uh, there was a lot more of this concept of division between 
uh, say this group and that group, uh, whether it was based on uh, even religion or even where I was growing up in the South, that there was even still a residual division between even color, let alone gender. And nowadays there's such a, a push and I, and I welcome it, such a push to bring us all together and, and get rid of these divisions that uh, we now in our quest to show love to each other and to show compassion and to show acceptance and even belonging that we, we go to the extent of enabling anybody and everybody and whatever they are choosing to do and wherever they're choosing to go in life. And, I, and sometimes those things that they are choosing to do in the directions that they are heading may be different than ourselves. And that's okay. That kind of diversity, I do believe, is healthy and good, but we can still walk hand in hand as we move forward through life. That doesn't mean that we need to, in every situation, enable the person to go in that direction. Um, if my and I'll and I'll use I'll use uh, an extreme example. Uh, my children, for example, like to believe that they should choose whenever they would like to go to bed and uh, that their choice because they are they believe they're of age is independent of what I believe their ability is to get up in the morning. <laughs> now, I know through experience that my child, if he goes to bed at a certain hour, or my daughter goes to bed at a certain hour, they have a better chance at having an easier morning and a happier day. That doesn't mean they have to go to bed at that time every time, but as long as we can get a good average of those in. So even though I'm, I'm letting them explore the path of when they would like to go to bed, that doesn't mean that I need to enable them to choose whichever one they chose in that evening. If my son says, hey, I'd like to stay up a little bit longer so I can finish this documentary or, or, or conclude this movie or uh, uh, wrap up this chapter in this book, that doesn't mean that I need to enable him by saying, that's a great idea. In fact, when you finish that movie, why don't we put on another movie and make a great evening of this? That would be enabling him down that path. And I don't believe that that's necessarily the, the way I have to show him love. I can show him love by hearing him and understanding that he would like to explore that path and then allowing him a little bit of freedom to go that direction. and then. And then reconciling with him in the morning about how that decision felt. And then even reconvening in the evening time of whether we should continue with that path or should, or should we look at an alternative path. Maybe for the next couple nights, we go to bed a little bit earlier so that this weekend we can stay up later. And that's the difference to me between um, validating your loved one and enabling them. I don't believe that if somebody's going down the path that I said, like I said earlier, that we need to buy them the bicycle that gets them, that goes down that path quicker. I don't believe that we need to buy them the, the bicycle and then adorn it with everything that they're exploring at that moment. Um, you know, we, we don't need to do that to help them understand that we recognize that that door needs to be open for, for a time until that chapter or that season in life has been, uh, has been explored and maybe even uh, concluded and hopefully answered. Um, but that's, I, I, I worry about the, our quest to love and embrace has now adopted this culture of, of enablement, if that's a word, of, of going beyond just support and love that we're now enabling. Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that with, uh, with my siblings, with you know, our activities and evenings out. At one point, I would even draw a line with them and say, it's time for us to go home. And if, you, you know, if, if we're not all of accord, then I must go. And that's okay because you're still my brother and I still love you. And I will see you tomorrow no matter what. So if we choose to part pass at this point. I don't need to enable the relationship by going out and staying out beyond 
the point that makes me feel comfortable or that can actually damage my happiness or peace in life. So there are thoughts of how we should do this. I think it brings us to a thought of even personal reconciliation. How are we responding to those situations? Are we condemning our loved ones immediately? Are we, are we avoiding them because we simply don't know? Um, are we enabling them to not only to their own detriment, but possibly to our own unhappiness? Or are we simply, and, and, and the way I believe we should be, are we loving them through simple validation? I love that segment, Ed. Thank you. And I love just all those four sections, great insights that apply to so many segments of our life. It's not just our families, it's friends, it's church situations, it's work situations. Talk in this last segment about just um, the shame that people feel in our church and how people sometimes feel less of themselves. And you may have been aware of this well before you were bishop, but it certainly became more, I was more aware of it as a bishop. Um, So just talk about that part of your journey and your ministry. So this has been a wonderful part of my journey in ministry because it's, it's something that I actually love to kind of dive into. Um, I'm a firm believer that 99.99% of everybody out there in the world is truly good. In fact, often we, uh, we notice something that they do uh, uh, that's different. Uh, and sometimes by society, we can say that's wrong or incorrect, but we have a very narrow perspective of that. It may literally be a, a, a moment in time that we recognized or, or, um, or a small interaction that happened to transpire. And we have all of a sudden decided from that, uh, that, that microsecond that they are a bad person. And I find that, I find that troubling. And I find that uh, the vast majority of the time, and I say the vast majority of the time, virtually every time to be completely and absolutely false. Uh, so the, the, the problem in our society right now is that we live in a, si- a society of validation and we live in a society of, of, of comparison. So we are, not only do we go down the road and we can see what each other is doing and wearing and driving and who they're, who they're walking with and who they're dating and who they're working with. And then we even go one step further. We publicize it. We put it on everything. We put it on our, you know, we put it on our social media and it's not enough to have one social media. It's enough to have, it's not enough to even have three or four. In fact, sometimes there's so many of them that we can't even keep up with all of them. I used to joke years ago when social media was really starting to take off that don't give it much credence because the vast majority of everybody that is on there has taken that picture at the most opportune moment. They have figured out the perfect lighting. They have figured out who they're, they've realized who they're with. They understand the, the texture of the, of the, of the moment. And they take those pictures. It's like, it's like how many of us truly believe that our neighbor down the street is wakeboarding every Tuesday afternoon and he's always in the perfect sun with the perfect light. That just never, that is not true. But the way we take those pictures and the way we send them out, and I'm not condemning that. I'm not saying that that's wrong. We should share the things that make us happy. We should share the joy in our life and we should share those events. The, the, the problem I find and that I've discovered is that people look at that and they go, why isn't that happening in my life? Why is everything going right for them? And it seems like everything is going wrong for me. And what I have found is that the vast majority of us are actually more at the same level. We, life is more like we're, we're more at par with each other than we realize. So when I was serving, um, going back in all the different leaderships, whether, whether I spent many years, 10 years as a, as a youth leader, I spent many years as a young men's president, and I would have these youth come in and they would struggle with who they are. They would, you know, they would, uh, they would be like, well, I, I, you know, I can't get a date for prom. Um, I didn't make the football team. Um, 
I, uh, I didn't get chosen for state. Um, I didn't do this. I couldn't, I couldn't find that. And it would literally break my heart because I would look at these youth and they were so good in so many ways. And so I would just sit there and I would pull them aside and all I would do is try to build them. They have this whole world that's constantly trying to pull them down. And the world can be really tough. It can be very um, cold. It can be very heartless. And it doesn't seem to care if you recover from the beating that you just got. So we have to be that. We have to be the person that chooses to see the good in each other as opposed to seeking the bad. So my choice was to constantly look for the good in them, not just the good um, in their deeds, but their good in their soul and even the beauty of them and, and even how they are just as individuals. So I would spend a lot of time with them, pulling them aside and, and I would, I take great effort and energy to go, um, Hey, I, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I, I know that you ran in the track meet. I saw it in the newspaper or whatever. And they be, and they would immediately say, because this is what the world tells us, well, I didn't win. And I go, that doesn't matter to me. The fact that you were there and that you tried is all that I care about. You have experience. In fact, whether or not you win or lose, you'll soon forget. But the fact that you were there with people and you made friendships and you developed relationships, that's what you'll remember forever. That trophy, that award that you get, you'll put it on a shelf and one day your mom will try to give it to you because she doesn't have anywhere for it. And eventually you'll put it in a box and you'll forget about it and you won't remember even what that thing went to. So we should never put our, our value in that trinket. We should put the value in, in the, 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 the people that, that we have around us and the relationships that we've created and the friendships that we know to be true. When I was um, when I was serving as a bishop, I would have these uh, these individuals come in, and they would come in at all different all different levels of uh, self awareness. Um, and some of them would come in truly broken. Um, the minute they would sit down, and if you know, and if they were an adult, and we had the door closed, the minute they would sit down, uh, they would immediately break down, and they would just they couldn't even talk. It would just the emotion would just come and spill out and they would just say, I'm broken. In fact, that was the thing that I would hear most is that I'm broken. And I would say, how are you, you know, how are you broken? And they say, well, I have done this or I have done that. And now I have potentially ruined my relationship with my neighbor or my child or my sibling, or even, even sometimes the worst ones were with my spouse. And I'd say, and I would often say, whether or not those relationships are broken or are or, or ruined is yet to be determined, but you are not broken. You're never broken. In fact, I would then ask them if I could do something. And it was often received with great question of my own sanity, I guess you could say, or my prudence as a, as a bishop at these moments when they felt broken and they're talking about these different things that they believe to have been, you know, transgressions or however you want to define those things in life. Um, I would say, will you humor me and let me do um, a temple recommend interview with you? And for those of you that are, you know, that are new to this or coming in or not of you know, of the, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or of this, you know, this particular faith, a temple recommend interview. When I was growing up in the Catholic faith, it was not much, much different than an interview I would have with my, the father of my, you know, of, of the, uh, or the pastor of my, you know, congregation where they'd come in and check on you and they would start with the basics of life. You know, how, you know, do you believe in God, the eternal father and in his son, Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost? Every faith has these kind of interviews just to establish a common ground. And, you know, the, the, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there's no difference. They have these questions and they, they start with the very basics of, of what we would call a faith, the very basics of faith. And then they build all the way up to more complex, you know, questions of, of 
you know, of devotion and things. But the reason why I would go through this is if you were to look at these as almost like questions on a test, I would ask the, the person across from me generally, and I'm not saying that this would happen every time because I realize this isn't always the, 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 the case, but it doesn't matter whether this one's answered right or not. There's always another one in there. But I would start with the question of, do you believe in God, the eternal father and in his son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost? And nine out of 10 or more times, they would say, of course I do, but that doesn't mean that I'm not broken. And I say, no, no, listen, I understand. And they'd say, well, that doesn't mean that I didn't do this. And I go, listen, we, I know that. In fact, that thing that you said that you did, I don't even want to deal with that right now. I don't even want to talk about it. In fact, I'm going to take it and we're going to put it over here on the shelf and we're, and it's closed and it's off the table for tonight. I want to do this first. And I would go into these questions and of the, you know, of the 11 or 12, 13 or 14 questions or whatever that we would get through, depending if I would go beyond and ask other questions or whatever, um, depending on if it was a youth or an adult. And, but if it's say that, say, and we'll, we'll shrink it down just to make it easy for mathematical purposes, say there's 10 questions that I would ultimately get through. I would find that the vast majority of the time that they would answer eight or nine of those questions affirmatively. Um, and I would look at them and, and smile and then with total love. And I would say, you know, if this were a class, you just, not only did you pass, but you just got, you got a great grade. You got, you got a B plus and A minus and A or whatever you, whatever it is, you're doing great. You didn't just pass by the skin of your teeth. You're passing by being the upper echelon of this, of this group. And I do this to show that they are good people. They forget that they're good people. They forget that, that they still have all the basis and all the foundation of what it is to be not just good, but great. And sometimes we step back from great and, and are only but good for a moment. But very rarely do we find individuals that step down from good to bad. And I believe that in moments of life, um, we go from great to good and good to great. But that's the, that is what life is. We live in an organic, imperfect, um, dynamic world. And it's impossible. In fact, we're told it's impossible in this life to be perfect or in essence, to be great all the time. We will step back to being good and that's okay. Because the, the, it's not whether or not we are good or great at that moment. It's simply, what are we trying to be? And uh, I, I have a philosophy in life that there is no such thing as maintaining, that we have to constantly strive in life to be great. That doesn't mean that we are. That just means we have to try. And if we aren't, if we aren't moving towards that, life is like an escalator. If we're not taking steps up in this ever uh, difficult world that we live in, the escalator will pull us down. And it's like we're walking up an escalator that's going the other direction. We don't have to sprint up it. And we don't have to, uh, we don't have to jump up it. We just have to continue to move up it. And if we move, sometimes it'll feel like we are maintaining, but if we are maintaining as we're moving forward, then we are doing awesome. So I believe as, as an ecclesiastical leader or as a, as a friend or as a neighbor, as a parent, our biggest job in life is what we have been charged with is to look at the individual and find the good in them and help them rediscover the good. Um, I read a book recently called Tattoos on the Soul or on the Heart. It's a fabulous book and it's about a Catholic priest helping individuals discover um, their identity and his way of helping them to discover their identity was rediscovering the name by which their mothers called them. And he tells this story of a, of a young man that he meets and he asks him, what's your name? And he goes, well, my name is Sniper. Now I'm going to mess this story up. So I'm, I, it may not be perfect, but it will be close. And he goes, really? So your name is Sniper. That's what your mother called you when you were born. And he goes, no, my name is 
something else. And he goes, really? That's what your mother called you? And it was it was another kind of more pleasant, but similar gang name or a, a name given to them by society, not by their, not by his mother. And he goes through this process and goes right down it. And eventually he goes, um, he says something like, um, uh, it, actually, if my, it, my name is Juan, and I can't remember if that's the actual name. He goes, my name is Juan. But when my mother was really being loving, she would refer to me as Juanito. And, and then you, you feel this moment where he rediscovers who he really is. And I believe that that's us. We have to, as leaders, as parents, as neighbors, as friends, as we go through life and we validate individuals and their hardships and struggles, we have to help them rediscover what their name is, or in essence, symbolically, what their name is, who they really are. Um, they really are children of God. They really are brothers and sisters of our Savior, Jesus Christ. They really are family to each of us. And they, and they have a name and they have a reason and they have a purpose and they were made and they were made just as good as every one of us were. And we were all made good and we are good. And we're just trying to find our path and our way in life as we try to discover what it is to be. And I, rep- and I say this and underline it, that we find on occasion what it's like to be great for moments as we pass through this life mostly being good. That's a great segment. Um, I just sort of feel like I walked in your bishop's office. I walked in the culture of your ward. I walked into how Christ teaches people and how he loves people. I love the Brene Brown quote that says, shame says I am bad versus I did something bad. And I love the way you separated that and that you're not broken. Yeah, there may be a relationship that will need to be rebuilt, but you separated those two, and you separated. And I think of the prodigal son, sort of the worst case scenario of somebody who, you know, feels the way we feel at times, and how this, how that father, who I think represents our heavenly father and the savior, treats people just like you treated people in your office. And I love you going through those temple recommend questions and just anything we can do as parents or priesthood leaders in these vulnerable moments where people are opening up and feeling broken and feeling all is lost to act on the inspiration you have to do things to pull them out of those. I always felt listeners, you heard me say this, that Satan doesn't really win when we sin. He's not, you know, I don't want to endorse sin. Be careful there. I mean, it's just part of mortality though. I think he wins when he causes us to feel we're broken. And we're outside of the atonement of Jesus Christ. We've gone too far. And we're fundamentally flawed people. And I love everything you said, Ed, to bring people back to within, because they never left the love of God or the ability of the atonement to help them. And to me, that's just a key part of our doctrine. And um, Satan's role is to separate us from our bishops, from our families, from the love of God, and keep us kind of in this shame and self-loathing. and. Um, it doesn't apply to me. So any last thought? And I love, I've read that book. It's interesting. Our local bishop, who's now our bishop, gave me that book about five or 10 years ago. And it's, he is that kind of guy. And he gave me that book. But I love what you taught about the mother's name. I remember that part of the book and how names are so important. And how if we go back to, I think you're trying to bring us back to how our heavenly parents feel about us and how our mother earthly mother feels about us to pull us out of these moments of shame and self-loathing and to help us understand who we really are so that we can make our way forward. That was, that was gold. Um, I've never thought, it's been a long time since I've thought about that. And um, even the tender moment where the mom in the most loving place, they used her most, and there's this relationship for those of you lost your mom and never had a mom. I recognize that's not part of your life, but I think that's the way our heavenly parents would talk to us. I think um, they would call us by name. I think they would, and I think they would use that in the most tender way possible at our very worst days. I think so. And just like a just like a child that comes in from a bad day of school, and half the time, as a parent, we look at them and we go, that wasn't that bad of a day, but to you, it was horrible. <laughs> so I'm going to sit here while you're upset, and I'm going to listen to you. And then a lot of times what is very comforting to them is that you call them by name. 
my mother used to, you know, I go by Ed, but my mother always called me Edward. And she was always like, I call you Edward. And don't you ever forget that that is the name that I gave you. And it was this interesting identity and this comfort and this love that I, my mom was proud of who I was without even knowing who I would be. I was always something special to her without being anything at that moment yet other than just her child. And I think Heavenly Father is that way with us. And I think that's how we need to be with everyone else. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what you, you know, how much money you make in life or the trophies you get or the people, um, you know, the people that you date. What matters is how you make other people feel that are around you. And I think we find peace and love in our own lives when we help other people rediscover who they are and find peace and love in their life by lifting them, by validating them, by loving them. Any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, Ed? Any final thoughts? (laughs) You know, I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for my uh, relationship I have with my heavenly father. I don't want to, I didn't actually expect this to turn into anything like a testimony or anything like that. Uh, But in some ways, testimonies are born without being over a pulpit per se. And I'm grateful for the relationship I've always had with my Heavenly Father at my darkest moments, at my scariest times, at the, at the, um, when I, when, when I feel like I just can't move on, I've always felt like that I could reach up. I wasn't a hundred percent sure that somebody would grab hold and lift me up, but I did feel like that I could always reach up. And what I have found in my life is that I have ultimately always had a safety net and that has always been provided by what I believe. And I shouldn't say believe that I know came from my heavenly father. I'm grateful for, um, I'm grateful for the identity I have and the, the, the understanding I have of my savior and who he is and what he's done for me. And that he knows that I struggle and that I have challenges and that I'm imperfect. I I joke with my family that as a convert of 18, uh, I got a free pass. All these, all these blessed um, members of this uh, uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint that grew up and they were, you know, they were baptized at eight or nine years old. Uh, they were held to a very high standard that I wasn't held to until I was 18. And somehow or another, when I joined the church, everything was okay. And so, and, and that's how I look at a lot of people. I'm like, well, if everything was okay at 18 for me, then everything can be okay for you too. And, and it, it doesn't really matter when you decide uh, to actually uh, have that baptism or that change in life. Uh, it doesn't really, it, you know, it just matters that it ultimately happens, whether you were, uh, uh, physically baptized at eight, uh, you know, our moment of conversion may come much later in life. And that may happen at eight. It may happen at 12. It may happen at 32. Um, but at one point or another, uh, the beauty of life is that it can happen. And the Lord's time frame is entirely different. And it can, and he doesn't really care whether it happens at a much later time in life or or whatever, just as long as ultimately it happens. And I think that's the beauty of our gospel is that it gives us that opportunity to find that. And, uh, you know, I could just ramble on how grateful I am for the tools that I've been given in life. I mentioned in an earlier segment about even the word of wisdom. I don't see the word of wisdom as, as limiting. In fact, I find it as, ex, ex, as expounding and, 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 uh, endorsing it gives me an opportunity to build and to grow and to and to also show who i am and i'm proud of the symbol that i carry of of the word of wisdom you know it's a wonderful opportunity to kind of stand out not because i'm greater or holier but just so that i can remember who i am this symbols for me to remember who i am in my relationship with god not not for any other real reason. And, uh, and I'm grateful for it. And, um, and I'm, you know, I'm just grateful for the, 
the the even the challenges and trials that I've had in life. It's uh, um, I I didn't mention this in the earlier segment, but when I joined the church, I wasn't it was not received fondly among most of my family, nor my friends. In fact, I had many friends that chose to no longer be my friend. And I actually had several friends that wrote me letters and, and publicly uh, condemned me for the choice I had chosen. And yet uh, I stuck to it and moved forward through it, even though it was a challenge. And those taught me wonderful lessons and I'm grateful for them. So this has been, you know, it's been a wonderful opportunity to be here and to share this and, um, and, I'm just grateful to to just be part of this experience of this world that we're living. So thank you for having me. Um, thank you, Ed. Your great heart, your insights into the gospel principles to bring hope and healing and just your ministry and your life story. And thank you, Aubrey Chavez, for connecting us and the good work you and Tim do. And this is Richard Osler and Ed Axley signing off from another episode of Listen, learn, and love.